All right. Thanks so much for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want more information on Park Hills or you want to learn about the other things that we're learning and talking about, go to parkhillschurch.com. Pastor Alex. What's up, Chris? We're going to dive into Exodus, kind of a book that we both enjoy. Yes. And we're going to be a little nerdy. Let's do it. So you uh, preached, you know, uh, you preached the first Exodus sermon, talked about kingdom, great theme, great way to start to open up this conversation. And I'm I'm going to leave some of this to you because these are your notes and I'll just interact with you. So, sure. so you take the lead here and I'll just follow along. Ooh, I love having the reins. I'm sure you do. Especially talking about Exodus. Yeah, Exodus is one of my favorite Old Testament books. I have a few. Jonah, Hosea, those are super cool books too. Also cool. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I think a few things that we should talk about today, just because they're super interesting to me and I hope they're super interesting to you too. Uh, we're going to start because they all kind of hinge on who wrote the the book of Exodus and really the whole Pentateuch or the, yep. the Torah. Um, you know, tradition says that Moses wrote it, and actually there's evidence in uh, in the Pentateuch that, right. you know, Moses wrote it. Uh, and and there, there's some interesting points about, you know, did Moses really write this uh, oral tradition? Is he recording it? Um, you know, the, the end of the book describes Moses' death, and okay, obviously Moses, unless he was like being prophetic from the Lord. <laughs> and then, you know, the verse about like, oh, Moses was like the most humble guy ever. Correct. Like nobody in Israel has been like, I don't know, maybe, maybe but but that's also so so cultural. Like today, if you're like, I'm a pretty humble guy, everyone's like, obviously you're not. Yes. But but maybe in that day, uh, it would have been, been seen as different. Um, but then even Jesus describes mm-hmm. the the Torah as the law of Moses or, uh, you know, he just talks about like, don't you know what Moses said or things like that. Um, and so there, but there have been challenges to the, what we call the mosaic authorship and people reading, I really started with the enlightenment and digging into, uh, some of the different terms or some of the different ways things are described, or there's a lot of double descriptions Things will be described and then immediately described very similarly, but slightly differently. Uh, and so there there came out this view that maybe there were four authors of the Pentateuch, and they call those the J-E-P and D, or the Yahwist. How do they say it? Yeah. The, no, the Elo... I forget that Elohist. one. Elohist. 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 I always want to call it the Elohimist. Uh, and then the the P is the priest and the D is the Deuteronomist. And right. basically what they're looking at is they're saying like, oh, some of these, um, some of the passages in the Pentateuch uh, refer to God as Yahweh. And some of them refer to him as Elohim. Those must be written by different people. Of course. Yeah. And then Deuteronomy was probably written by its own person. So that's the Deuteronomist. And then the priest probably had some some thought into this and not the priest that Moses was contemporaries with, but the priests later serving under Solomon's temple. Like those priests were like, Oh, we're going to write things this way. And uh, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of like (laughs) 
stuff. Uh, it's interesting to some of us. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if it's interesting yeah, yeah. to everyone. Yeah, yeah, and, and especially like they're like, well, the Deuteronomist or the Deuteronomist, um, you know, he was the first person to introduce monotheism. You know, the the Yahwist and the Elohist were like they didn't really need monotheism. They were like, there's many gods, but you should pick this one. But it wasn't until the Deuteronomist came and, and writes, you know, Deuteronomy six and says. Um, so again, all interesting, but what what I have a hard time with is, is a lot of times things are accepted by Christian tradition for a long, long time. Yes. And then thousands of years. Yeah, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And there's internal and external evidence in the Pentateuch itself and then outside, you know, even even Joshua describes the law of Moses. And this is a guy who knew Moses. Um, and then you have to write papers in academia, right? Yeah. You have to write a paper. And the only way to continue writing papers is to get published and make money for said papers. Mm-hmm. So if for thousands and thousands of years, everyone's like, oh yeah, this was written by Moses. And you are like, I'm going to write a paper and uh, I'm going to write about Moses as the author. Everyone's going to be like, well, yeah, duh. Like, you're not going to get published. But if you're like, well, wait a minute. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Everyone's like, <laughs> what? Oh, man, we should read this. We should publish this. And it, it became super popular, you know, maybe in the last, what, 70, 80 years, somewhere yeah. around there with biblical scholarship to say, let's just challenge everything. Uh, did Paul really write anything in the New Testament? Every book, Pauline authorship is challenged. Uh, basically, uh, this is a little bit reductionistic and a little bit of a straw man to say it this way, but uh, yeah, it's basically because that's what gets you published. Yeah, I think that's a good critique, and it's awfully cynical, which I totally appreciate yes. and love. <laughs> but there, you know, just to break it down in a slightly different way, there's a ton of evidence that leaves you wondering, right? I mean, we've both studied Exodus repeatedly. Exodus is a weird book. It's got a bunch of clumps thrown together. It's got some major timeline issues, right? There's moments where it'll say something like Moses was here. And then the very next chapter, it says Moses was here. But then the next chapter puts Moses back at the first place. And so then you go, did he go somewhere else and then come back to the first place? Or was he always in those two places and someone just kind of shoved this in here? Or were the the oral traditions all written down and kind of thrown out there and then someone eventually gathered them all up and put them in this order. Is there a reason why things are seemingly out of order that are trying to make a point of what God's trying to say or do? Mm-hmm. And I think what we're trying to say is scholarship exists on both sides of these camps. You're going to find a lot of scholars who don't actually believe that God is real. I mean, the vast majority of biblical scholars that I spend time reading, unfortunately, don't actually even believe it any of this is legit. So then I take that and I go, I step back from it a little bit and go, all right, how much am I really going to give credence to these people? You know, the JEDP uh, folks, they're looking at this saying, there's no way that God gave the Israelites this book in the desert. First of all, how did they write it down? How did they get it? Where would they have put it down? Uh, And then eventually, why is it so jumbled? Why is it so weird? Why is it so crazy? And they just immediately throw sort of God out of the thing. And they go, well, then if we're going to look at human authorship, here's one possible scenario. And they come up with these four authors. The other way to look at it would be tradition is not a terrible thing. And maybe God is real. And if God is real, then maybe there's a different way of looking at this entire set of data. And 
most of the the good scholars that I spend time with who actually are evangelical and believe that this is legit, they believe that God is real, they look at this and they go, there's actually tons of really good explanations as to why this is so jerky and, and, and weird. So we both have landed in the mosaic authorship camp to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are clearly, I think there's clearly portions of the Pentateuch, Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, where a later person put a script, put an inscription in, such as Moses is the most humble man that ever lived. It doesn't even mean that if Moses wrote that he was wrong. I think he was totally right. He totally could have. But I think it's, there's a, there's a reason why that little thing is, is put there. And I believe that God inspired someone later to write that. So we both hold wholeheartedly to scriptural inerrancy. We also hold wholeheartedly to the fact that, uh, divine authorship through human authors makes a ton of sense, if not the most sense, based on what even the scriptures say. But we wanted to at least throw it out there that there are other people out there that have other opinions. You're going to find those. But I guess my message would be you don't have to immediately jump off the bandwagon. You can say, oh, that's nice. I I appreciate that you believe that or think that. There's a whole bunch of other ways to look at it that are all legit and, and good scientific if you really care about science ways to look at this. Right. And I think that teaches us to consider the source when we're yes. reading anything because, yeah, I mean, my, my view is pretty cynical toward uh, non-believing authors. And I don't want to throw all that out because biblical scholarship is a good thing. And if, yes. you know, we can begin to group think if we're not at least reading and interacting with other sources. Um, but, you know, as, as, you know, I think of myself as a scholar, so we want to understand these, but we also want to understand you know, somebody oftentimes things like challenging authorship are trying to take the spirituality out of it Yes, and just see it as, oh, here's an ancient text of literature and to them authorship really means nothing. So, hey, let's, let's publish something on yeah. a different view. So, And if you find something in the Pentateuch, so when we say Pentateuch or Torah, these words are all interchangeable. Pentateuch just means five and first five books. Torah, again, means instruction. And that covers Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we call those the books of Moses. That's what Jesus says. Moses, when he says things like, you know, listen to Moses and the prophets, uh, you know, there's so many times that he says that in the New Testament. You're going, Moses, there is the Torah, and then the the prophets are all the things that follow. And our reading plan this year, actually, is is following more of that that Jewish understanding of the Old Testament reading plan. So it's going to be a little bit different. But so what we're saying is we hold to Mosaic authorship. If there's something that seems a little out of whack or something a little weird, uh, ask us. <laughs> we've probably already studied it. There's a good chance that we've had that same issue where we went, I don't know what to do with this either. Let's figure it out. Or we can at least point you in the direction of a really good paper or a really good book that answers some of these questions for you. So, you know, if you're, especially if you're a high school student listening to this, which welcome, I'm glad that you're actually listening to the Park Hills podcast if you're in high school, you know, but whoever you are, if you're listening to this and you're going, oh, I never thought about asking those questions. This is kind of why we have the jobs we have. We love helping people answer these questions and think this through. Yeah. And some of the stuff that we talk about are like questions we didn't know existed until somebody brought up these questions to us. And so, right. You know, maybe some of these are like, I didn't even know people talked about that. And, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You're not going to surprise us. You're not going to scare us off. Yeah. You know, if you read something on the online somewhere and you're like, I didn't realize this part of Exodus means this. It could. Let's talk but, it through. And that's where, you know, Chris, you've talked about the theological icebox. Right. You know, putting things in the icebox, letting them kind of chill out in there until you can 
have a conversation and dig a little bit more into it is helpful. Absolutely. So, so Chris, Chris, you and I both uh, agree with mosaic authorship. Yes. So let's dig into some of the cool, well, I think they're cool. Other yeah. people are like nerd, uh, some kind of the cool <laughs> outworkings of did, did Moses write this? So the first thing is thinking about Moses, right? So Moses is Hebrew and I'm sure he knew he was Hebrew growing up, yes. right? Cause his mother weaned him. Yes. And, uh, yet he was taken in by the daughter of Pharaoh. And so he grew up in Egyptian royalty, which means he had Egyptian uh, education. He had Egyptian culture. So he knows all these things about Egypt intimately. These are things that he's experienced, but also he has an understanding and a knowledge of Hebrew culture and Hebrew religion. Right. Uh, so if Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and specifically the book of Exodus here, did he write Exodus as a polemic against what he knew in Egyptian religion? So I think the first thing when we dig into that question is we have to clearly define polemic. So give me a good definition of polemic. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit with Revelation uh, over the summer and just discussed really the idea. So a polemic is something that is written to directly attack something else. So some really famous polemics throughout history, uh, you know, probably the most famous is Voltaire's Candide, right? So in your uh, it can't be that famous, Chris, because <laughs> it's really famous. It was really famous in the 1800s. I know people today probably aren't reading it, but he was a French philosopher who was really disappointed with Christianity, and so he wrote a book that was ba- that was a polemic against Christianity. And so really what Candide does, this individual, is he's searching for meaning and he doesn't find it at all in Christians. And he finds Christians to be hypocritical, priests to be hypocritical and ridiculous. And so as he's searching for meaning at the end of the book, basically it just kind of becomes almost nihilist. Like Mm -hmm. meaning is meaningless. There's nothing, you know, it's almost like Ecclesiastes sort of idea. Um, But the truth is like a polemic means that you're writing something as a direct attack against something else. So, you know, if you're familiar with our culture, uh, the last f- four years, for example, there were lots of polemics written about the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just a part of how our culture manages things, right? You, you have people writing stories and, and uh, stories, probably the best way to put it, to kind of make a direct attack against something else. Right. It, and using it as a literary device. Mm-hmm. And so that it can be true and factual like what we have here or it can be stories you know one that maybe is more famous to people like myself like normal normal people yeah to like normal people as like i've read uh george orwell's 1984 totally right totally written in 1948 about 1984 his polemic about kind of where culture and government are headed so if you just read this as a story you're like oh like that's an interesting weird story but then if somebody says hey that's a polemic about the modern uh, direction of government, you're like, oh, and and even so, right. so to take that a step farther, The Hunger Games, right? right? The Hunger Games is an interesting story. I've I've read those books. Um, they're interesting. They're cool. Right. And but when you see them, you're like, oh, that's that's like a crazy story, and like kids killing kids, like that's that's kind of creepy. Yeah. It's kind of bad. And then when someone says, hey, I I think what Suzanne Collins maybe is doing is she's maybe writing about the direction of kind of where we're headed, right. a polemic against our current government and you're, and then you, oh, oh, like, yeah, it has a little bit more yeah. force to it. She's mocking Roman culture, gladiatorial battles, and then saying that we are willing to throw our kids to the pit 
of lions just to let them duke it out. And we're like, oh, that's mean. Why yeah. did you do that to us? Yeah. So I don't, Suzanne Collins hasn't come out and said, like, this is a polemic on modern government. But uh, yeah, but it's really close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's really close. So anyway, um, so... So so why does that matter with Exodus? Yeah, yeah, so getting so into Exodus. If, if Exodus is a polemic, why does that matter? Yeah, so what that matters is... Uh, I think I think when we look at scripture, sometimes uh, it's easy, especially in modern and, and non-Christ following scholarship, to say like this book doesn't really have so much meaning for us today because oh, it was just written against the Egyptians, right? And you know all these things like it's interesting in their context, but for us, like we don't worship the sun god, so you know, not a super big deal, right? And we would completely disagree with that sentiment, right? The the yeah. idea that it has no value today as an evangelical as a as a follower of Jesus, we would say that's that's bull. Like there's yeah. no way that that's true. Y- your view of this is really clouded and missing the point. However, it doesn't mean that we don't see this as a potential polemic. Right. Cuz right. Moses could be writing against Egypt and making a much larger point of our God is sovereign. He needs to be followed. And here's the proof of why he is. Right. So I would say it's not, its primary purpose is not to be a polemic. Correct. But it's a polemic because it's truth. Yes. And so all truth is going to be a polemic against untruth. So, you know, there's there's interesting discussions and, and we've, uh, you know, looked up and printed out things about like how each one of the plagues kind of flies in the face of different Egyptian gods at the time and really, you know, Ra being their, their powerful sun god, you know, like even uh, the earth is, is blacked out for three days. And, right. you know, but Pharaoh himself saw himself as a god. So then the, the death of the firstborn, you know, yes. cha- really challenges that. And I think all of those things are true. And, not but, and uh, on account of just this being truth, it, do, it is going to be polemic against Egyptian gods. Egyptian gods are going to be challenged. And this is really, Exodus is really, uh, you know, a battle between Egypt versus Yahweh. And Egypt has everything in its pocket at this time. And Yahweh has a bunch of slave people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to put it in, in, in these terms, so think of it this way. Egypt's, Egypt is Egypt because of the Nile. Right? right? The Nile River makes Egypt Egypt. Otherwise, it's just like the rest of Africa. It, it's Northern Africa, right? Yeah. So Sub-Saharan Africa and then Northern Africa, like it's just, it's dry and it's arid and it's, there's nothing to it, except there's this one spot where this one river allows constant irrigation within, you know, a quarter mile or a half mile of where that river is. So Egypt is, is spoiled with these riches. So what does God go after first? The Nile. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the very first plague goes against the Nile. And then the second thing that, you know, Egypt is really known for is their worship of the sun god, Ra. And so that's the ninth or the penultimate plague goes directly after that. And as you just mentioned, and then as far as the Egyptians believed, their gods were to be worshipped and their key god was speaking to the gods, but he was their pharaoh. Their pharaoh was the guy. So when you look at it that way, plague one, nine, and 10 for sure are speaking directly against, you think you're great because of these things. I'm going to take all of these things away from you and I'm going to show you that I'm better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think interesting in that is who gave 
Egyptians their power, wealth, military might, and influence at this time. Anyway, well, it was Yahweh through Joseph, right? Yes. Like if it wasn't right. for Joseph, Joseph's the one who comes and says seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. So Egypt stores up for seven years and then they start selling this. Well, now everyone in the area, including people in Canaan, like, you know, Joseph's family are traveling to Egypt and giving them their money just to get grain. And right. so Yahweh gives them all this wealth. And do they worship Yahweh? Do they follow Yahweh? No. And so now Yahweh's coming in and saying, well, I'm taking all that back. Right. And so, yeah, on the basis of that, it is very much a polemic against Egypt. However, I don't think that the prime, Moses didn't sit down and say like, man, I need to really fight against the Egyptian gods. I'm going to write a story about that. Right. Um, it's just polemic on the basis of being right. Totally. And the fact that this happened in the order that it happened and the way that it happened, you know, you'll, you'll find scholars out there that say this is just a natural occurrence that led to all these other natural occurrences. What, whatever. I, you can all believe whatever you want to believe. The fact that God says in Exodus 3, I am this, this is who I am, follow me. And then he gives his people a chance to follow him. And then he shows them his power by just systematically knocking off the Egyptian gods one after another, you should back up a little bit and go, okay, this might be Moses writing strictly a polemic or Moses is writing the story as it exactly happened. It happens to be a polemic, but the main point is like we said, God is in charge and God should be worshiped. So then the rest of the book becomes this beautiful literary piece of I'm your God who brought you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you somewhere else. I'm going to show you something else to give you something beautiful about who I am and what I'm all about. And when you believe that, we're in the place that we're supposed to be. We're in the relationship that we're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one cool cool piece of the polemic, uh, we're going to dive into this topic a little bit, is that uh, there's an interesting theory, and I'm going to give a shout out to a, a professor of mine, Dr. James Blumenstock from Cedarville, uh, introduced me to this theory. and Because that's the purpose of podcast, to give shout outs, by the way. So Shout out. Shout out. Um, Dr. what? James Blumenstock. Blumenstock. What a great last name yeah. for a scholar, especially. Yeah. Uh, so he introduced me to this, and I've, I've thought about it. It's a theory. It's not like, oh, we know this f for sure because we can't actually ask Moses about it. But there's this, this idea that um, Moses, in writing this book, you know, with God's hand, him being schooled in Egypt, knowing their mythology, one thing that was... Uh, meaningful and important in Egyptian mythology was the preservation of a name. And that's why you have um, all these Egyptian hieroglyphs. And I, Dr. Blumenstock took us to the Met Museum in New York. So we're at not like, not like Creation Museum, not like a, you know, biblical theme, not nothing against Creation Museum, but I mean, not like a museum that is saying yes. like, let's look at the Bible things in these artifacts. Yes, I got you. Yeah, just like regular yeah. museum. And we're looking at Egyptian artifacts and, and he's reading them and he's reading name plaques. And they would have name plaques all over the place because it was so important. Preservation of the name, their personal name, was important for right. uh, eternal life, right? And that's why they built, you know, pyramids and tombs and right. sarcophagi. You know, like we got to— Obelisks yeah. with writings on them. That, yeah, we got to preserve everything. We got to preserve your body. We got to preserve some food for you. We got to preserve your name, like all these things. Right. And there's this idea that Moses, knowing that mythology deeply, leaves out— all personal names of Egyptians in the Bible because he knew he was writing something that a, a book that would be preserved forever. And so he actually just leaves out all their names. And that's really cool. So like, really cool. for example, uh, like Pharaoh is a title 
it's right. not it means big house like you see the word fair meaning how house what we pronounce fair i'm not i don't have the egyptian pronunciations in front of me but that pharaoh means it means just it's the word means big house and that's why over and over it said like this pharaoh died and that pharaoh died it doesn't say like right. you know Ramesses or which has created problems for dating exodus right right that's one of the main reasons why we have issues with all this is even place names sometimes are an ancient name and then a newer name you know like we it says there are storehouses in Ramses and Pith- Pithom, but then later on it uses a totally different name, which was the ancient city of Avara. And then you're like, or Avaris, and you're going, which one is it? Is it at the, were they calling it Avaris or were they calling it this? And it's like, we don't know. So the fact that there's so many different place names that even change their names is weird. But then on top of that, you've got titles instead of yeah. actual names. Yeah. And so another one, some people point out, well, what about Potiphar? And you actually see half of the word Pharaoh in Correct. Potiphar's house because Fair or far just means house. And so Potiphar is just literally like a guy who lives in a house, like house dweller. You have big house and you have regular house dweller. Right. And and his wife is just called his wife or even Potiphera, which is just a uh, feminine form of the term Potiphar. And so you have – and that's actually caused a few issues – in misunderstandings because there's actually one Egyptian whose name is given in the Pentateuch, and that's Joseph's wife. If you're reading Genesis 41, verse 45, Pharaoh, look a title, gave Joseph the name, and then he gives him a, an Egyptian name, and gave him Anesnath, the daughter of Potiphera, mm-hmm. priest of An, to be his wife. And so here we have uh, a woman, Joseph's wife, who I would presume, based on this theory, probably was a believer and did yeah. trust Yahweh through yeah. the influence of of Joseph. And she's called the daughter of Potiphar, which is just the feminine form of Potiphar. But this has caused some issues because some people have read that and said, oh, well, how is this person related to Potiphar, other Potipharas? And it's like, no, it's, it's, just, it's just a title. It's just like right. the woman. Which we don't understand because we read titles in English and we just think nothing of them. But like if I kept walking around, like let's say you lived in a big red house, like a red brick house, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to use your name, you know, for whatever reason, you disgraced yourself or me, you know, <laughs> and so I refused to use your name in writings. And I kept calling my friend Alex Red Brick. In English, you'd be like, well, that's clearly not his name. There's a reason why you're doing that. But the name has gotten lost for us because we're talking, you know, at, at the, even the the latest possible date for the Exodus this would have started to be written about 3,200 years ago. So you're telling me over 3,000 years we've lost meaning? That's so weird. Like, that, yeah. you know, that never happens in our language. Well, and I think it's it's also interesting, this is kind of a side note, but there are words in the Old Testament, and especially these early words, that we're just not 100% sure what they mean. Yes. And so what do translators do? Sometimes they just do what's called transliterate. They just take the Hebrew sounds and assigned English letters to them. And that, I mean, that's Nephilim, right? Because you guys yeah. you guys talked about that yeah. in the last podcast. Like, we don't know exactly what the Nephilim no. are. So em is just a plural. It's like putting an S at the end of the word. So then it's just like, there are Nephils. And we're like, well, how do we translate Nephils? I don't know, just replace all the letters with English letters and say Nephilim. What does that mean? Not really sure, but no. there it is. And linguistically, there's two different possibilities for where Nephil comes from, and as we were saying. So like, there's just... We don't even know what the word means, and yet we make a huge case about it. Right, and so that's when they come up to to 
Potiphar, they're like, is this a name? Is this a title? What does this mean? It's it's actually, it's a it's an Egyptian word that is being transliterated into Hebrew that we are now transliterating into English. Like, uh, yeah, so uh, what do those letters mean? I don't know. Uh, Potiphar, might be a name, might be not. You know, I, I, you see that in the book of um, uh, Hosea when Hosea starts naming his kids, you know, name this kid, not my people. So do we translate it as the kid's name is not my people or do we transliterate it as lo ami? Right. You know, and right. That, that's what's happening here. Which brings us back to your sermon and really what we were talking about in the, this theme of kingdom is going to get played out throughout the entire year. But part of the question you were asking and part of what we really didn't spend a ton of time in the sermon on in it, but it deals with all of this because mosaic authorship, the polemic conversation, and then the, the lack of names being in it, at least part of what is being discussed here is whose kingdom do you really serve? And the kingdoms of the world in the Bible are going to step to the fore often, right? Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome. You know, these these are going to step forward in the Bible and we're going to go, whoa, I did not realize there was this connection or this connection or this connection. But what the Bible always is saying, no matter what kingdom we're talking about is, are you going to live by that kingdom or are you going to live by the kingdom of the Lord? And that was the, I think that you did a great job of, of making that case in your sermon. And so when we talk about polemic and all these other things, like how would you nail that part down? Like let's, let's, you know, give them a nice little soundbite here at the end. Just how do we take kingdom? And if, if Moses is speaking against Egypt or if, if all of this is really just to say Egypt is not the place to be, here's why. How would you throw that out? Yeah, I think I would say that Egypt, I mentioned this in my sermon, Egypt becomes an archetype, right? Like yep. all, all these, all these, not that it didn't happen. We're not just speaking like, oh, let's metaphorically or just make up this story. Like this is a true story, but then it becomes an archetype that we look at. So we say all of these kingdoms, what they offer us is not, is not good enough. You know, uh, Egypt was offering wealth and power at the time, military might. Uh, and even even the people of Israel were like, oh, we want to go back to Egypt. We had leeks and onions, you know. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we had some sort some form of security there. And I think what Moses is writing is he's saying like, listen, Egypt looks like they have it all together, but they don't. Right. And they're not. They can't give you the hope that that Yahweh gives. That trust in Yahweh gives. So, what what kingdom are you going to choose to be a part of? And then when you choose to be a part of one kingdom or the other, how are you going to serve that kingdom? And I think that's really where that comes to us today is there are so many kingdoms around us. And I mentioned this in the sermon again. Um, sometimes it's easy to forget that this kingdom we live in right now is not God's kingdom. Right. And all the, all the people that love this kingdom and promise that this kingdom can give us things like safety and security and rights to do this and rights to do that, that's just not worth it. It, because there's a better kingdom. And so let's not throw our allegiance in our service to this kingdom that promises us all these things that it will eventually take away. Because that's what Egypt did, right? Egypt right. gave them wealth and a safe, secure place to stay and then turn around and enslaved them when a pharaoh didn't know Joseph. And and this kingdom will do the same thing. It'll promise us rights and security and we'll say, hey, you know, we'll give you what you want. We'll help you out. We'll help you in your goals. And then they'll they'll turn on us. They'll turn on, on Christ followers because it's no longer expedient to give us what we want. And so the, the, the challenge is 
let's not be builders of, of this kingdom. Let's not be builders of kingdoms in the world. Whether we think it's a great kingdom or we think it's a terrible kingdom, uh, none of those are as important as our citizenship in heaven. And that's the kingdom we are to be building. So we're to be about discipling people, leading them to Jesus, and uh, Christ will change their lives. Not, not legislation, not political power, not anything like that. Yeah. I think that's well said, and that's a good place for us to end with our first part of Exodus. Thanks for listening.